Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. The year is 1980. Sydney's streets are filthy, running rampant with crime and corruption. Puberty blues is onto the cinemas, Ice House is blaring on the stereo, it's humid and dangerous, and a young man has decided to join the police force to fight crime. That man, of course, is my dad. Loose Units, the podcast, was created to tell the cases that wouldn't fit into my first book, Loose Units. But Loose Units was a series of fantastical tales that I wrote based on the real crimes my dad solved on the force back in the early 80s. So this season, dad and I are finally going to go back, back, Back to the year 1980, and each week we'll be going chapter by chapter through Loose Units, the book, and Dad will tell us the story behind my version of events. It'll be thrilling, revelatory, and as always, very, very loose. Welcome to Loose Units Origins. Hello and welcome to Loose Units Origins. We are nearing the pointy end of this season. We are almost at the very, very finish of recapping my book, Loose Units, which is written about Dad's... I keep wanting to say adventures, but really that's not the... That's not the word to use. Now, Dad, I just wanted to read you something very quickly from the prologue of Loose Units. Yeah, go for it. Okay. So the very first line of Loose Units is, I was seven years old when I saw my first dead body. And if we skip ahead, I basically fall into this, uh, you know, into this bunch of case files. But beneath the first photo was another. This one had something wrong with it. There was a mass of blood in the center of a room. Burnt fragments of hair and skin clung to the floorboards. Essentially, what happens at the start of this book is that I tell a fairly sensationalized version of me being traumatized by the story that we are about to delve into this episode. Because when I was, yeah, seven years old, I accidentally stumbled into... See, what actually happened was, Dad, the thing that really triggered years of night terrors and nightmares for me was that one night I was in my bedroom and I couldn't sleep and you and Mum were having some sort of dinner party. Do you have any recollection of this? We used to have a lot of dinner parties, Paul. Yeah. Something that we don't do now. Oh, God. Now, why well, yeah, why don't you have dinner parties anymore? Well, we live in a tiny house, which I've always dreamt about living in. Sure. I love tiny. I mean, I don't like everything tiny, but... All right, calm down. But I'll tell you the lengths we used to go to. Christine, who was a very good cook, we would have dinner parties where, believe it or not, listeners, we would have a up to a three-page fold-out printed menu. Are you serious? Oh, fucking oath I am. Crazy. With, uh, with photographs of each dish. And these were exotic dishes and exotic evenings. And, you know, I mean, imagine how 
you know how I sort of relive all these stories with you and the listeners, Paul? Yes. These dinner parties were taking place whilst these stories were actually happening. So you'd be working and doing all this traumatic shit and kind of mm. dealing with the police stuff. And at the end of the day, occasionally, you would come home and throw a dinner party, mm. right? Yeah. Okay. And some of these dinner parties were um, borderline notorious, might I say. In what, well, now, is that because you did what I think you're going to t- say you did? And is that because you would occasionally hold court and tell people the stuff you'd been living through? Mm. Yeah. And can you imagine that some of these experiences were all hours, if if not days old? So they were very, very fresh. And but- around the time when I was seven years old, you'd been out of the force for a few years at that point. Mm-hmm. Right? But yeah. but we still socialised with um with police. Right. And um and their partners. Is there a degree of one-upmanship with police? Are you trying to kind of tell the most messed up stories possible? Well, sometimes as the evening would progress and the alcohol would sort of floweth, you know, it became fairly fairly intense. And um, and I dare say there was a, a touch of, um, you know, competitiveness insofar as who could tell the most fucked up stories. And we always had our favourite stories, of course, and unbeknownst to... Christine and myself, um, in the particular place we were living in, you occasionally would overhear certain stories. Um, and I, I, can, I can only imagine. I mean, we would never have told these stories in front of the children knowingly. Of course. But, um, you know, little kids sometimes like to sort of come out in their pyjamas and sort of see what the grown-ups are doing. And, yeah, I mean... the. I in this case, it wasn't really that I was actively seeking it out. It's that the the living room where you were telling the stories had two big sliding glass doors. Mm, right? That's right. Kind of like frosted glass. So yeah. I couldn't see through and I couldn't sleep. And I assume at that point, I think we started going to bed at about 7 o'clock, right? Mm. Like really early bedtimes. So I think at about 10 or 11 probably, um, sometime around then, I couldn't sleep. And so I think I walked out to go to the bathroom or something. Mm. I remember wearing, I was wearing flannelette pajamas and I remember hearing the i think the beginning of the story that you're about to tell on this episode Mm. and i think it was when you and julian were entering the house was around the time that i was entering the story and because it's a because you're telling a story and you know you're being quite gregarious and like i said holding court you know you you had a you had a table full of people like hanging on your every word and so i sort of just did that thing that you do sometimes you know when there's like a a story being told or a TV show on in the background and you just sort of start to zero in on it. And I got to the point where I believe, well, I can't spoil anything, but I got quite far through the story. And then I had this sort of brain snap and I flung the doors open and just started crying and screaming and saying, stop, stop, stop. I don't remember what I said. Hmm. At which point I think mum put me to bed and tried to calm me down. Hmm. And I had recurring nightmares about that story for, I would say until I was about 15 years old. Hmm. Just yeah, like, it was I terrible. Mean, I, I, you you remember my night terrors, don't you? They were scary because you'd we'd stand you in front of a mirror sometimes. We tried all different techniques and you would be looking into the mirror but you didn't see yourself. You saw some demonic creature with a face melting off or something. It was really heavy. And I remember you used to always tear at your stomach. So you always had this feeling that we had the feeling that you had sort of, you thought you had demons inside you. It was fucked up. And of Jeez. course, no, it was really bad. And the thing is, it lasted... Um, we had to both sort of stand and sit and sort of be with you for about maybe 15 minutes. Um, but then 
of course, eventually when you'd go back to sleep, then it was very diffi- difficult for us to go back to sleep because we were traumatized. And how many years did this go on in your in your recollection? Till you were, I guess, um, maybe in second form in high school. Um, okay. And they were just the same, and you saw the same. It was it was really horrendous. In fact, I, it's pretty, pretty, you know, it's pretty stressful thinking about it um, because if but you it- if you witness someone with night terrors. You can't get them out of it for some time because you couldn't see us. Yeah, you were, it's basically. I think it's sort of high level hallucinating. It's a walk. It's a waking nightmare. Literally, you are in the real world, but you are seeing things that aren't there because you are trapped between. You know, and those things. What I'm trying to say here is that those nightmares were triggered by me overhearing this story. I know mm. that because the things I was dreaming about were this this story. So mm. it's an incredible story. But the most messed up thing about it, Dad, was that I got to this point where, you know, I'd hit this sort of creative barrier back in like 2016, I would say. I hadn't really, you know, like there were a few things going on, but I really needed something to do. I needed to make something. And I was in a pitch meeting with Penguin pitching some stuff. And I basically pitched the idea of this book based on your stories. And then I went back home and started compiling notes. uh, And I thought, look why not start with this story and you insisted on kind of ending with this story and building up to that point to Mm. kind of make sense of everything. Mm. So the book starts with me being traumatized by this, this thing that's about that you're about, you're all about to hear about. Uh, Mm. If you've read the book, you know it. If you've been to my live shows, you may have heard dad tell this story. It's not part of public record, but what's very interesting to me is the fact that when the book was being written. I think the book had been approved and, you know, we hadn't done much. And uh, I knew that the story of the witch uh, was going to be prominent. And so we came to Sydney, Tegan and I came to Sydney, and you took us to the house where this takes place. Yeah. Mm. Well, <clears throat> you've sort of oversimplified things, Paul, in that you and Tegan wanted to do a cook's tour of a lot of the locations from my time in the New South Wales Police Force that were in the chapters of your first book. Mm. So I, I took you to the um, the morgue, which everyone's heard me talk about ad nauseum. And at the time, it was the largest morgue in the Southern Hemisphere. And they used to do post-mortems. And the reason I say used to is that the building um, has been demolished in the last few months. Right. But when I took you and Tegan in the ute... So the, the, there were the three of us sort of squashed up in the front, which I thought was kind of nice. I took you to many, many locations. The morgue was one of them. I took you around into that back street where you could see where the police sort of enter. Yep. You, could, you could see where all the vans come in, where they deposit uh, the bodies. And then once they've had the, you know, the examinations, the postmortems, all the, all the things, bearing in mind that some of the bodies that were at the morgue, some of them were there for many, many months some were waiting to be identified. Um, and then we drove over the Harbour Bridge to North Sydney Police Station and I sort of took you around the back into the alleyway and showed you, you know, gave you a very visceral sense of that. And then I think it was uh, it was either you or Tegan that said, look, is there any chance of seeing the, uh, the street or the house? I'll read the chapter that we're about to to go into today yeah and at first i was very reticent Uh, i was prepared to sort of show you um in sort of generic terms sort of a 
fairly general location. You weren't going to take us to the actual house. You were going to no. give us the street, I believe. Yeah, yeah. I was, yeah. And, I, and, I, and I, to this day, I, I, I can remember the name of the street, the street number. Mm-hmm. And I'm not very good with names, as you know, Paul, but I can remember this particular... Um, I just thought it was not cool to, um, to sort of show you the, the precise place for, for lots of reasons. But also, you know, it's, it's a, a known fact that I'm very bad with names. However, I can remember her full name which consists, consisted of um, a Christian name, a middle name, and a surname. I remember the absolute minute details. And when I drove into the street with you and Tegan, it was kind of a bit of a creepy afternoon. I don't know whether you remember, but it was cloudy. And it was sort of a bit, bit weird. And, I, and when I drove into that street, that's the first time I had driven into that street since that fateful day. Mm. Um, so I had mixed feelings. Um, and I think, was it you or Tegan who had a camera with us that day? I had a camera. I had like a like an SLR camera and I mm. wanted to go like go in. But do you, could, do you, would you feel comfortable naming this street or would that be weird? Oh, uh, do you want me to? Yeah, I do. I do. Wow. This is the first then, isn't it? Yeah. Okay. It's Somerset Street, Mossman. Okay. Somerset Street. It's a kind of a Somerset. It's sort of a it it conjures up sort of sort of mid Victorian England on the moors. Somerset, something out of a a nineteenth century a poem or a novel. It um, sounds beautiful, and it was a lo- like it was a lovely day, but there was a slightly odd vibe about it. I will mm, say it was very. There was a pall of um, kind of I don't know whether it was all in my mind, but. Oof, creepy street i mean i'm just wondering whether any of our listeners actually live in somerset street mossman and i would not be surprised after this episode if some people go and check it out however they're never ever 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 under torture going to get the number of the street um but you and tegan uh managed to get me into the street and we drove down I almost said what side of the street it was on, but oof, I didn't. Um, yeah. And we pulled up just down from the house. We, the three of us, exited the uh, the motor vehicle. Mm-hmm. We went over to the place, and the thing that had changed, without giving too much away, is that let's just say because I've got to be very careful here. I don't want people sort of going into the street and trying to figure out, you know, from the cryptic information. But let me just say that access to the house was not as it was back in the 80s. Mm. And you, Paul, you got very excited and you wanted to sort of photograph actually. And and that's when I thought, nah, this is getting a bit weird because people would have thought, what, what's, why are these people at this place? And you were very sort of, you were jumping around and, we needed to sort of hot tail it out of there, I thought, because I, I was getting a bit of a bit of a creepy vibe, and I just have a real moral. I was thinking about it this morning when I was running on Bondi Beach, and I was thinking about the would I like to live in a house, like would I like to sleep in a bedroom? And we have touched on this in the past, Paul, knowing that when you looked up into the sort of the corner of your bedroom, you knew that someone had once hung from there. I just, mate, I couldn't do it. I know, I know. I, I feel the same way. I just, yeah. I, I, I just, 
you know, and some there are just some sad places around. You go into some places, you know, Christine and I have been to some female 19th century convict prisons in Tasmania and it's just totally fucked up. There's no one there. You can't really describe the vibe, but there's yeah. something miserable. And I just thought, you know, imagine if, Paul, we sort of disclosed this particular house yeah. where, this, where this stuff happened. And this stuff that we're about to to delve into is it's creepier than any film I've ever seen because it's real and I experienced it with my dear, dear good friend, Julian. So would you like me to sort of paint the picture? Yeah. So talk us through, well, first of all, what was the call that you got that, that okay. took you there? It was a very, very unusual call. And like in policing, sometimes a very insignificant and seemingly minor call over the police radio can unfold into a classic story that stays with you forever. Yeah. And it was around about one in the afternoon... Julian and I were working car 610, which was the car at Mossman. Yeah. So it's weekday. It's it's a fairly nondescript day. I remember it was, it was beautiful weather. It was, it was definitely summer. Mm-hmm. And the New South Wales Fire Brigade had been called to a house in Somerset Street, Mossman, to a small fire in the front yard and the small fire was and I'm just trying to I mean I can now in hindsight imagine what the fire brigade thought when they rocked up to this house Mm. they rock up under siren to discover a small fire inside a bucket, just a, your average small tin bucket, which is in the front yard of this house. And there was clothing inside, or the remnants of clothing, and they put the little fire out. They had a cursory glance of the, sort of the interior, but they did not enter. And they, they left, and they put a call through their radio to notify the local police. They're covering their ass. We get the call over the police radio, car 610, attend a small fire that has been extinguished by the New South Wales Fire Brigade. Now, just so quickly, at this point, the Fire Brigade would have seen what you're about to see, wouldn't they? No, they didn't go in. They didn't go oh, inside. Oh, shit. So, so they are first responders, but their assumption is like, okay, if they get to the place and there's a fire which you're going to describe shortly Hmm. did they not then knock on the door see anyone's there look they that i don't know but they certainly did not enter the house and and there's not a chance that they went in the house if they had have gone into the house Mm -hmm. it'd be a completely different story of course of course um but no they didn't which is kind of pretty pretty good in a way um because the last thing you want is a bunch of fireys walking through. 
a, a scene and possibly destroying evidence. It's a, good no- thing the, um, it's a good thing the fire wasn't actually, you know, anywhere near or in the building. Otherwise, the water would destroy a lot of evidence. Correct. Right? And also, imagine if, well, imagine if the house had burnt down. We, we'd have no story or we'd have bits of a story. If you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm Lip Fillers. With Juvederm Volbella XC and Juvederm Ultra XC, your lip look, whether it's subtle or bold, can last up to one full year with optimal treatment and no additional maintenance. Find a licensed specialist and see if it's right for you at Juvederm.com today. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Add fullness to lips in adults over 21 with Juvederm Volbella XC or Juvederm Ultra XC. Do not use if you have severe allergies or a history of severe allergic reactions, or if you're allergic to lidocaine or the proteins used in Juvederm. Tell your doctor if you have a history of scarring or taking medicines that decrease the body's immune response or that can prolong bleeding. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. As with all fillers, there's a rare risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. For full, important safety information, visit Juvederm.com. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. But because of the way this unfolds, Paul, we have the entire story in minute detail. So just quickly, Dad, I think at this point I'm uh, I'm looking at the time here. I think it would make sense for us to split this into a two-parter because this is kind of the penultimate case in the book. Mm. I think, are you okay with maybe doing a two-parter? Yeah, definitely. Okay, well, I hope the listeners are up for it because, I mean, you know, this is a very, very detail-oriented story and it's thrilling and terrifying. So at this point, let's just zim forward a little bit. You and Julian get the call and the fire brigade have put out a small fire. So why would the police be called at all? They, whenever there's a fire... yeah. And it was it it was clothing, and it was sort of in a little bucket out in the front yard, and that kind of just made the station officer because he's the guy that makes the call. I say guy because back then it it was it was pretty well all men. Mm-hmm. Um, of course, now you've got female station officers, but you know there's a close relationship between the fire brigade and the police force, yeah. and there's a fire station in Mossman. And there's a police station, so there was very there was a bit of a bond between the two groups, and I guess partially it could have just been um, a courtesy, um, but but any type of fire, generally speaking, the fireys do notify the police. 
uh, which is which is which is prudent mm-hmm. and and very prudent in this particular case, in case there's more to the story. So Julian and I we drive into the street. Now I remember the sergeant who was on. He was the station sergeant, and for the first time ever, I'm going to use his real name. His name was, because I believe he passed away, but his name was Ron Walsh. He was a fucking great police officer, but he was not particularly liked. He was a very, very, very difficult man to to read. He was a hard nut. He had a massive black moustache, but he was responsible for some of the of some incredibly big arrests, like major, major arrests, um, whilst he was at Mossman. Um, but he was a, God, he was a tough nut. He was just so, just difficult. And to get his respect was tough. But this is a day where Julian and I got the respect from Ron Walsh. Um, he was a first-class sergeant. Now, when I say first-class sergeant, listeners, I'm not saying he was a first-class bloke. Back in the 80s with the ranking, I'll just quickly go through the ranks because it's quite important. Yeah, you were a constable for five years. Then you got your first hook. Then at nine years, your second hook, hook being stripe. A lot of police just sat on and became senior constables, and that's they were happy with that. Then you'd have three stripes which was sergeant you'd then have three stripes and a crown which was like a second class sergeant crown sergeant and then you had got rid of all the stripes and just had a dirty great big crown so you were like a crown sergeant which was the the highest rank within sergeants then you went on to inspectors etc so this ron walsh was a first class sergeant he'd been in the job back then for at least 30 years you couldn't pull the wool over his eyes he knew every single trick in the book so when Julian and I rock up to this seemingly sort of relatively minor insignificant event, we go over to this bucket and we see, and I remember getting a stick and we poked around and we lifted up because the, the fireys didn't, they put the little fire out. They didn't sort of pull everything out of the bucket and spread it out over the lawn. But Julian and I with the aid of a stick, we started to sort of examine this material and we realised that they were remnants of female clothing, um, i.e. a dress. Could you so tell that, more about, like, what... Could well, you, How burned was it? It was pretty bloody ratchet. You could only see a little bit of the pattern left in this garment. And... You know, there were a couple of other little black sort of... It was fairly sooty, charcoal, sort of, you know, clearly been a fairly high-intensity fire. And sort of Julian and I looked at each other and thought, you know, not a lot, but, yeah, it's it's worth sort of, you know, checking out. So we then proceeded to the front of the house and there was a sort of a, a wooden deck and it was a single-storey house. The house was built in the 19... I'd say it was probably the 1940s. And it was very basic, um, but was in a magnificent suburb of Sydney, i.e. Mossman. Mm. And we did what um, 
what any police would do and you sort of you know how you go up to the to the window and you look into the lounge room and you sort of put you cup your hands either side of your eyes you i mean of, non-cops do that right like that's, true true you know, yeah it's a normal thing wanna, yeah okay and, and we just wanted to peer inside to get a sense and everything in the house appeared to be you know very normal um there was nothing to indicate on sort of upon first glance that anything untoward or weird or dodgy had taken place. So what's your, I mean, when you find women's, like what, what are you guys thinking at this point? There's women's clothing that's burned in a bin at the front of a house. Had Was there any sign that any of the neighbours had, I mean, would you not, were there no sticky beaks that would kind of go, oh, I was, thought I saw something? Or? No. I can tell you, Paul, mm. on the balance of probabilities, that particular day, there was there were very, very few people in the street who were home. Okay. You know, most people were at work. Yeah. And it was a very, very quiet street. It's a cul-de-sac. Mm-hmm. And so there's just no through traffic. It's sort of one of those streets where if you blink and you're driving, you don't even see it. It's a very nondescript street with a very very low traffic sort of flow. You only go into that street if you have a reason to. So basically we went to the front door and we knocked and then just like in the movies, we reached down, turned the knob and the door was unlocked. And we opened the door and obviously we, we, we're becoming we go into a very um, sort of hyper-alert mode because, you know, we just we just started to get a sense of something weird and then we realised, the first thing that we realised was there was actually the smell of smoke and... Um, almost a sort of a, like a, a sort of a propellant, you know, being petrol or, or something else. And we, mm-hmm. could, we, we could sense and smell because the, the, the sense, your senses become heightened when you're going into a, into a place that you, you just quite frankly don't know the story. And then we thought, shit, this is, um, this is a bit weird. And then... We made now I remember the floor was it was a wooden floor and it was not polished. It was kind of just raw timber and the place was immaculate. It was totally and utterly immaculate. How dark was it? I mean is we, this one of the It was mm. dark. It was mm. pretty dark. We were just utilizing the natural light. The first thing that we saw that made us basically shit ourselves and it was so sort of fucked up and demonic but the first thing we saw was in the kitchen there was a massive sort of massive glass cabinet that partitioned the kitchen it was like a wall so instead of having a wall solid, she, shit, I've said she. Is that okay to say that or should we? Yeah, it's fine. Okay, so 
I mean, I shouldn't really say that because anyway. All right, she uh, had probably, I'd say 200 bottles and inside every single bottle were animals, small animals, birds, mice. In bigger containers, there were dogs and cats, but they were pre, they were like <clears throat> the fetuses right. <clears throat> of animals. Julian and I looked at each other <clears throat> and we realised on first inspection that we were dealing with something probably paranormal here. Did you talk about that before continuing into the house? Neither of us uttered a word. Okay. We were both totally relying on our on our visual senses, visual mm. and smell. We weren't talking. It's not it's not really appropriate at that stage. We're just trying to get a sense. And then I remember Julian and I looked at each other and we looked down this hallway and we saw what appeared to be and I'm really trying to sort of explain this as best I can without sort of giving too much away at this stage, but we saw multiple silhouettes of what I would describe as a person in extreme... It's almost as though the walls were were crying out to Julian and myself. The walls were talking to us saying... For God's sake, guys, have a look at this and see what, what, what can you see? What, what am I telling you? And what we had were these... Okay, I'll give you an analogy. Imagine if you or any person was to stand against a wall and someone in front of you would then hit you with a flamethrower, so you're, you're a light, and then you stand for a moment in extreme agony against the wall, and then you move away, what do you think is left there? Like a silhouette. A silhouette. And there were these... We just both looked at each other, and we both hot-tailed it out of there. We just stopped everything. We thought, this is so bad... We began to get a sense that something, I mean, for God's sake, we've just seen what I would describe as a, a cookbook in terms of weird objects inside bottles. But you know what's interesting, Dad? If you Google Hiroshima silhouette, basically this thing happened during the, uh, the bombings in Hiroshima where wherever people were standing, when the bomb went off, it created this... So basically, when the bomb went off in Hiroshima, it kind of etched your silhouette into the wall behind you. So there's these things called nuclear shadows, mm. right? Because mm. um, it basically, the surface of the bomb burned at 10,000 degrees Fahrenheit. I don't know what that is in, in uh, Celsius, but it means anything within 1,600 feet of the blast zone was incinerated, meaning that if you are standing in a certain position, there's literally silhouettes of, um, like, were left on stairs and on walls of people just going about their lives. So what the, the kind of heat it would require for that kind of silhouette to be impressed along the wall of somebody writhing in agony. I mean, that's, that's crazy. So at this point, you guys bolt out of the house mm. and you've seen the silhouettes and you've seen the burning clothing. So what kind of a picture are you building in your minds of what happened here? No great picture at this stage, Paul, but the... the look, I, I think it's fair to say that Julian and I thought mm. at this stage that 
I think we were dealing with with witchcraft, without a doubt. Okay. And we were shit scared. Bearing in mind, Julian and I are well, we're in our in our twenties. Mm. You've also seen a lot of terrifying stuff at this point. So. Oh yeah, yeah. And mm. and and you know, I have a fertile imagination. Yeah. You, you didn't really need a super fertile imagination when you were confronted with this. But here mm. is something that I don't think is in the book, Paul, and that is that we realised. So basically, we it was like holding your breath and going into a certain environment mm-hmm. for as long as you possibly could, but then you needed to come back out and sort of take in more oxygen and replenish your your vitality, your senses. We knew in our hearts that we were going to discover a lot more in that house. So we also... And I'm, this is hand on heart, listeners. We were determined at that stage, under no circumstances, were we going to hand this over to anyone else. This was our baby. Okay. And we knew potentially it was a crime scene. We couldn't leave the scene. We didn't want backup. We had to communicate on the QT to Ron Walsh, the supervising sergeant at Mossman Police Station on that weekday afternoon. Okay. So, we, this is just such a surreal thing I'm about to say. It's so, so bizarre and so fortuitous. There was a guy in the street who worked for whoever the organization is before they became Telstra. I don't know whether it was the PMG Mm. or whatever it was, but there was this guy and he had lifted up a concrete cover on the footpath Mm -hmm. or very close to the footpath and he was examining the phone, individual phone cables that went into every single house in that street. At that point, it would have been like a telecom guy, right? Telecom. Up. Yeah, okay. Yeah. okay. And how they used to do it, and I don't think they do it now, but he had, and there will be listeners that know exactly what I'm about to say, he had this oversized red telephone handpiece with two wires running from the base of it. Those wires at the end had alligator clips. And what he would do is that he could reach down, he would find an actual wire from a specific residence in that street, he would clip his alligator clips onto that wire, and then he could in turn use that occupant's phone line to make a call himself. Mm -hmm. Julian and I approached this guy, we explained obviously not in great detail, but we explained that we needed to make a call urgently to Mossman Police Station. Yeah. Julian and I then sat down, and I remember this, it was very, very surreal, with our legs dangling into this pit, and the guy, who was very, very accommodating and thought, this is slightly unusual. He then randomly connected his little alligator clips up to 
someone's phone line in the street. Yep. And he got us a ringtone. And we were able to call Mossman Police Station on the QT without going through VKG. If we had have gone through VKG, this thing would have been lost in history. Well, the detectives probably would have snatched it oh, up, right? Mate, this was... this. Look, Julian and I were already being courted by the detectives. We we were we were we were a gun a gun team. Yeah. And, and we just thought this is this is even though we didn't understand, we didn't know the whole story, we were getting a sense that if when we went back into this house, some seriously fucked up shit was gonna reveal itself. Yeah, and but you got permission to kind of stay on. We did. Oh, this sorry. is the great thing. Sorry, yeah. I, I won't boil it. Pretend I didn't say that. Go on. Yeah, but the thing is, Paul, that when we got on to Ron we explained to him in cryptic terms and we also said, because overtime was a very, very controversial thing back in the 80s mm-hmm. uh, with budget constraints, but we said, Ron, we believe that this is going to incur a fair bit of overtime. We need you to sign off. Because if he had have said no, because what some sergeants would have done is they simply would have got another car to come down Come the change of shift, say two thirty. Like tag in, tag out, basically, and right? just say, "Guys, see you later." And we just we were shitting ourselves making that call. Yeah, we were literally, and that's the day that that our respect and I guess fondness for uh, Ron Walsh um, went up, and vice versa. He anyway. Look, you'll have to wait, I guess, till next week, Paul. So at this point, uh, you guys need to go into the house and actually sort this out and deal with the horrors that you're about to witness. But if you hadn't called Ron Walsh, and if he hadn't said, okay, uh, you can stay on, um, then you would have had to hand it off to some other people. You would have like literally discovered this thing towards the end of your shift, this like formative case. And I would argue that I think it's fairly important that you ended up being the ones to deal with it because what what happens next is is the most I would say important thing that happened in your police career and it's next week on loose units we're gonna I know a cliffhanger we're actually gonna continue this next week so next week John and Julian head into the house on the hill and we will deal with part two of the you know the penultimate case I don't even know what the word penultimate means do you know what it means it means bloody big and exciting. Excellent. Well, if that's not a tease, I don't know what is. So please, everyone, if you haven't already, you know what? If you've read the chapter, you know where it goes, but I'm just so excited about next week's episode. And uh, at the end of the week, we're going to do a loose ends, as always. If you haven't already got your copy of Electric Blue, what are you doing? Get your butts over to Booktopia and grab yourself a copy. And also, we're going to be trying to do another Loose Units trivia over the coming weeks to help keep everyone company during the lockdown. If you missed it last time, let's all have a chat on the Facebook page and try and figure out a time that works for our international listeners as well. All right? That's all the time we have for this week's Loose Units. Have a great week. See you at the end of the week for Loose Ends, and we'll talk to you soon. Bye, everyone. Bye-bye. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hold up. 
What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.